Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of all the media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of 25 years in the practice of psychiatry, and also with the goal of trying to reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it while educating the general public about mental health issues. And welcome back to this podcast. Surely do appreciate your loyal listening. And this article that we're going to start tonight's podcast with caught my eye because it's about anticipatory anxiety. That is, put another way, worrying about the things that you know or think or anticipate may cause you anxiety. Those of you who suffer from panic attacks know that that feeling that you may have a panic attack can be almost as devastating as the anxiety the panic attack itself brings on. That's called anticipatory anxiety. Now, anticipatory anxiety appears at other times and in other situations. So let's talk about this article, and it includes um, some useful tips from the author of a book who says Americans just broke a record for being stressed out. And it's doing a number on our brains. Psychologist Melanie Greenberg, author of The Stress-Proof Brain. Wow, that's a great title. It'd be awesome if you could stress-proof your brain, right? Uh, well, she says changing the way you think about stressors can eliminate the phenomenon of anticipatory anxiety. The American Psychological Association's annual survey of stress in America had its first statistically significant year-over-year increase in stress levels since it launched a decade ago. Now, I remember when that survey came out, it's pretty interesting to think that the results of that have not increased over the past decade. I would have thought that with the recession that took place starting a decade ago and all the other things that the stress index would have increased. But there you go, apparently it hadn't until now. But it's not the stressor itself, it's how you react to it that determines the effect it has on your health, says Dr. Greenberg. She cites a study of mothers with special needs children That's a very, very stressful situation. Uh, But these women didn't see, they didn't actually see their roles as stressful. Their brains 
didn't experience the cellular aging experienced by other moms who did see their caregiving as stressful. The brain can create a lot of worry, she says, citing the common affliction she refers to as anticipatory anxiety. To me, this is a very interesting concept using her example of the mothers of special needs kids. Let's go over that. The, the ones who didn't experience their roles as stressful showed less signs of cellular aging in their brains. That's fascinating. You manage your stress that results in direct improvement into the health of your brain cells. Makes sense to me that there should be such a direct connection, a powerful incentive to work at managing your stress better. All right, so here are Dr. Melanie Greenberg's tips for combating anticipatory anxiety. Number one, live in the moment. There's a lot of talk these days about mindfulness, the act of focusing on what's happening right now. To help do that, Greenberg suggests focusing on your breathing as you describe the immediate sensory experience to reset your brain. And living in the moment means instead of worrying about what may happen in the future, we're concentrating on what's happening right now. So that's an excellent way of combating anticipatory anxiety. Couldn't agree with her more there. Number two, focus on what you can control. Our brains don't like lack of control, she says. Very true. She recommends redirecting your mind to what you can control. For example, if you prepared for a job interview but didn't get the job, recognize that's out of your control. Thinking and worrying about what you can't control is a major cause of anxiety, especially and including anticipatory anxiety. Uh, therefore, defocusing away from things and situations that you can't control is a great way, an uncomplicated way, but not easy necessarily, uh, to combat anticipatory anxiety. Number three, examine your thoughts. Ask yourself whether what's swirling in your head is helpful. Our brains have a way of taking you down a rabbit hole, she says. One negative thought can lead to a negative cycle. Absolutely true, could not agree more. Once you start down the road of negative thinking, it tends to feed on itself. It becomes a vicious cycle and you can spiral downward. And this is much the same way you can have the opposite situation. If you can summon the will to start thinking positively, then that can create a virtuous cycle instead of a vicious cycle and a positive adaptive spiral. But 
it all starts with the will to take the effort to look at your thoughts. When you start realizing that you're getting anxious, you're thinking about what may go wrong, you're thinking about encountering that situation that's going to trigger that severe bout of anxiety. Examine those thoughts, stop yourself, realize it's not helpful, and counteract that cycle of negative thoughts. Fourth, she says, practice self-compassion. That's great. I love that term, self-compassion. Before we even read the rest of the tip, that is such a wonderful phrase. People who tend to suffer from severe anxiety, as well as depression, tend to beat up on themselves mercilessly. They tend to be extremely self-critical, see themselves as a failure, see themselves as unworthy. So absolutely, being compassionate to oneself is a wonderful way to combat stress. When things go wrong, we're often far tougher on ourselves than we'd ever be to someone else. Ask yourself, what would you tell your best friend if she was in a similar situation, he or she? We're all human, Dr. Greenberg notes. We don't have to be perfect. This is spot on. Could not agree more. And I use that analogy all the time about what would you tell your best friend in the same situation. I think that method, the best friend technique, I call it, is most applicable to thinking about what to do about relationship difficulties. What would you tell your best friend to do in the same situation you find yourself in? But the reason she says this is a great way to combat anticipatory anxiety, and it certainly is, is that it will, if you treat yourself as well as you would want to treat your best friend, then of course that's going to feel good. And why shouldn't you treat yourself as well as you would treat your best friend? You should be your own best friend. I'll never forget I had a patient tell me that she so frequently and severely berates herself in her own mind, if not out loud, and sees herself so negatively and has feelings of worthlessness, such that her husband told her, you don't need any enemies. You take care of that yourself. A powerful statement right there. And lastly, Dr. Greenberg says to combat anticipatory anxiety, find like-minded people. Misery may love company, but companionship can also get you out of your funk. Sharing your concerns with others who understand you can reduce stress and help you find solutions. Well, I agree with that tip as well, but with an extremely important caveat. This presumes that you can find like-minded people who are compassionate, who understand you. Unfortunately, we have to face the reality that 
not everyone is able to do that. And if you seek that from people who aren't willing or able to provide it for you, that can actually make you feel worse. So I think the very cautious corollary to that advice of finding like-minded people is avoid the negative people in your life who are going to just compound the anxiety and negative feelings about yourself that you already have. You know who they are. Unfortunately and sadly, they may be very important people in your life, your parents, your siblings, and even your spouse. But at times of anxiety, it's best to avoid that. Well, let's take a break, and we'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. Listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. If you follow developments in psychiatry and treatments of mental illness, you're familiar with the buzz the past few years about ketamine, an intravenous drug previously used as a local anesthetic, widely abused and misused as a club drug. The buzz about it is because it relieves depression almost immediately instead of the medications that are approved to treat depression which take several weeks if they work at all. And if you're a regular and long-time listener to this podcast you know that I've railed against 
the use of ketamine in this manner, treat depression repeatedly because it is a hallucinogen and can induce psychotic symptoms. But always felt there needs to be more study about it before it can be legitimately and safely and widely used as a treatment for depression. Well, there is now uh, a more detailed analysis of the use of ketamine as an antidepressant, and it comes to us from University of California, San Diego. Uh, so let's take a look at this article and decide together whether this is convincing evidence that ketamine may finally have reached legitimacy as a treatment for depression or not. Better known as an anesthetic, or as I said, an illicit hallucinogenic drug, ketamine has also long been noted for alleviating depression, but it has not been tested in a large clinical trial. And that's remarkable when you consider the dozens and dozens and dozens of ketamine clinics that have sprung up all over the country to treat depression. But all evidence of its antidepressant effects has come from anecdotes and small studies of fewer than 100 patients each. Now, in the largest study of its kind, researchers at UCSD mined the FDA Adverse Effect Reporting System database for depression symptoms in patients taking ketamine for pain. They found that depression was reported half as often among the more than 41,000 patients who took ketamine as compared to patients who took any other drug or drug combination for pain. All right, let's take a closer look at this concept, this method, this idea, and what, what they did. So what they're talking about is <clears throat> ketamine intravenously is also used to treat pain. Uh, this is quite common. So they decided maybe a way to look at how ketamine works on depression would be to look at all the people who take it for pain and see how many of them report depression or not. Um, you know, at this point when I read this article up to now, I'm saying that's not going to work. Um, really, the only gold standard would be to take a whole bunch of people with depression and have large number of study subjects, and half of them would get ketamine infusion, half of them would get placebo infusion, and you see who does better. That would be the gold standard, uh, a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Neither the patients nor the researchers know who's getting what, and that's the only way to do this. Um, a noble attempt to look at the pain patients and then draw conclusions, um, but it's going to be hard to convince me that this is going to lead to meaningful data about using ketamine in depression. Nonetheless, let's read on. So this study was published uh, 
<clears throat> on May 3rd in the journal Scientific Reports, it also uncovered antidepressant effects for three other drugs typically used for other purposes, Botox, Diclofenac, otherwise known as Voltaren, and Minocin, which is an antibiotic. We'll get back to those later. Now, current FDA-approved treatments for depression uh, and depressants like the SSRIs, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Alexa, Lexapro, and Luvox, the SNRIs, Effexor, Prestique, Cymbalta, Fetzema, and miscellaneous antidepressants like Welbutrin, Vibrid, and <coughs> Trintelix fail for millions of people because they don't work or don't work fast enough. This study extends small-scale clinical evidence that ketamine can be used to alleviate depression and provides needed solid statistical support for wider clinical applications and possibly larger scale clinical trials, according to the study author. The FDA Adverse Effect Reporting System database contains more than 8 million patient records. The research team focused on patients in the database who received ketamine narrowing their study population down to approximately 41,000 patients. They applied a mathematical algorithm to look for statistically significant differences in reported depression symptoms for each patient. While most researchers and regulators monitor this database for increased incidence of symptoms in order to spot potentially harmful drug side effects, they were looking for the opposite. In this case, the lack of a symptom. In my opinion, in order to find a backdoor way to see if ketamine treats depression. What they found was that the incidence of depression symptoms in patients who took ketamine, in, in addition to other pain therapeutics, dropped by 50%, with an error margin less than 2%, compared to the patients who took any other drug or drug combination for pain. Patients who took ketamine also less frequently reported pain and opioid narcotic pain reliever associated side effects, such as constipation, one of the most common side effects of those medications, as compared to patients who received other pain medications. Now that is compelling evidence and strongly suggestive that the ketamine relieves depression, at least in patients who suffer from pain. But it still isn't going to convince me that this can take the place of large-scale controlled studies looking at patients who don't have any other illness, aren't on any other treatment, see how it works, and most importantly, in my opinion, monitor for the adverse effects. Are they having hallucinations? Are they having other symptoms of psychosis? 
Now, the authors admit it is possible that another factor common to patients taking ketamine was driving this antidepressant effect, such as the fact that ketamine also relieves pain. That's why they compared ketamine patients with patients taking other pain medications. That control group, they say, eliminated the possibility that people who take ketamine have less depression because they have less pain. It's still possible, though unlikely, the effect could be due to a still unidentified confounding factor. Now let's get back to those other drugs that they looked at. They didn't only look at the effect of ketamine for depression. They looked at three other unapproved drugs. And um, they also have previously underappreciated antidepressant effects that were in this analysis. Botox used cosmetically to treat wrinkles and medically to treat migraines and other disorders. Diclofenac, uh, the generic for the old brand name Voltaren, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And minocin, or the generic minocycline, an antibiotic. After the findings about diclofenac or Voltaren, the team went back and looked at ketamine patients who did not also take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and compared them to patients who took any other combination of drugs for pain except non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Depression rates in patients taking ketamine remained low. The researchers hypothesized that the antidepressant effects of Voltaren and Minocin may be due at least in part to their abilities to reduce inflammation. I think that's the obvious answer. Uh, we know that depression causes increased production of inflammatory proteins. So it makes sense that something that's anti-inflammatory would have an effect. Now what about Botox? How could that possibly relieve depression? And that mechanism is less clear. The research team is now working to separate Botox's beauty effects, which potentially could indirectly make a person feel better emotionally, and its antidepressant effects. To do this, they're looking at the FDA Adverse Effect Reporting System database to determine if collagen fillers and other cosmetic treatments similarly affect depression rates. Um, they're barking up the wrong tree. I think that's not going to be helpful to find out why Botox helps with depression. I think it's much more likely that by reducing the negative feedback from the nerves uh, that supply musculature to the face in states of depression, um, that's feeding back toward the brain from those nerves, and that's how it's alleviating depression. So that's really where they need to look. Not just that people are happier because their wrinkles are gone. It's kind of silly, actually, to think of that. Well, I'll explain more about that, and we'll finish up our thoughts on this study when we come back from the next break. 
You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peach Street ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We are talking about a, a study to try to discern more information about the antidepressant effects of ketamine. Along the way, the researchers also looked at some other innovative drugs that may approach depression that are used for other things, including Botox. Now, I actually think it was kind of silly and even embarrassing that these otherwise fine, high-caliber researchers at UCSD actually thought the reason Botox might relieve depression is people happier that their wrinkles are gone. That, to me, frankly, is shocking. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but it's just so simple-minded when there is a much more scientific and more obvious connection right in front of them. When you inject Botox into the face to alleviate wrinkles, it is likely that this drug, which is a neurotoxin, mind you, in, in too high a dose and administered the wrong way, is taken up by branches of the trigeminal nerve, which supplies 
uh, sensation and uh, muscular movement to the face, to the facial muscles. And this uh, drug then can actually travel back up the nerve into the brain stem from which it originates. And to me, that's the only logical way that Botox injections might alleviate depression. So that would be a much more productive way of looking at how it might work. Uh, instead of focusing on when people are so thrilled their wrinkles are gone that it will cure their depression. That just doesn't make sense. If someone has major depression, no matter how pleased they are with the cosmetic outcome or improvement of Botox treatments, that's not going to be enough to get them out of their depression. They may be happier with their facial appearance, but not as much as if they weren't depressed, and that alone is not going to get them out of their depression. As for uh, the final thoughts on this study, the World Health Organization uh, statistics are that more than 300 million people experience depression worldwide. So if not effectively treated, depression can become a chronic disease that increases a person's risk of mortality from suicide, heart disease, or other factors. And as I said, depression is currently treated with about five classes of antidepressants. So for, for financial and ethical reasons, ketamine has never been tested for its safety and effectiveness in treating depression in a large-scale clinical trial as I've said before, really is what needs to be done. And again, we've talked about how it reportedly works much more rapidly than standard medications. Turns out ketamine is relatively inexpensive and is covered by most health insurance plans if three other antidepressants fail. In other words, a health insurance company will approve treatment with ketamine, even though it's an off-label, non-approved treatment for depression, if a patient fails at least three different antidepressant drugs. I don't think you can say that across the board. Uh, there probably are some health insurance companies that would not pay for it at all. But regardless, um, Again, I think this UCSD study still leaves us with what is lacking and what is really needed to settle this issue. A large-scale study where the patients with major depression are randomly assigned to either ketamine or placebo and where they are monitored closely for any adverse effects from ketamine, whether that's cardiovascular effects, or things like hallucinations or psychotic symptoms. And as to the situation where the moment ketamine is inexpensive, unfortunately, I think if ketamine did get approved to treat depression, that would change. Uh, the scenario would go something like this. Uh, it would be submitted for approval as a treatment for major depression by a pharmaceutical company. They would get the approval. 
they would sell it with a different name and uh, with you know different fancy packaging and delivery system and after all it is intravenous and jack up the price. Another possible scenario is that since, let's face it, intravenous administration of ketamine is not exactly convenient, uh, perhaps another delivery system would be developed that would not require a patient to come into a clinic to have the drug administered. And in fact, some companies are working on this. Um, for example, an intranasal administered form of ketamine is being worked on. Regardless uh, the way the pharmaceutical industry works, unfortunately you can pretty much guarantee that if it ever does get approved as a treatment for depression, it will not be inexpensive at all. Well, I'll keep you up to date as more developments occur. Now let's turn our attention to a couple of articles I found about postpartum depression. Uh, this is important for all you listeners who are women of reproductive age. Um, <clears throat> evaluation between maternal health and discharge readiness. Each year, more than 450,000 babies are born preterm in the United States, many of whom spend days, weeks, or even months in a neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU. The mothers of these infants are at increased risk for maternal mental health disorders, including depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress which could impact their transition home to care for their infant. New research indicates that mothers with a history of mental health disorders feel less ready for discharge from the NICU than with mothers without a mental health history. The research entitled Maternal Mental Health and Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Discharge Readiness in Mothers of Preterm Infants, has been published in the journal Pediatrics. And the uh, research team was led by a neonatologist at Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. The primary objective of the research was to evaluate the association between maternal mental health disorders and discharge readiness. They defined discharge readiness as parental emotional comfort and confidence with infant care in addition to attainment of skills and knowledge with parent mental well-being critical to parenting readiness. I think you can clearly see that when it comes to the stress of not just taking care of a newborn but a preemie you're about to take home, uh, this is obviously a huge challenge uh, and uh, something that certainly could compromise the mental health of a new mother. For this study, 934 mothers of infants born preterm, that is earlier than 37 weeks gestation, 
between 2012 and 2015 and who were participating in a transition home program completed a discharge readiness questionnaire. The questionnaire measured perceptions of staff support, infant well-being, that is how medically stable the baby was, maternal well-being, as measured by emotional readiness and competency, and maternal comfort, that is, worry about her infant. Social workers obtained a history of previous mental health disorder. The researchers hypothesized that mothers with a history of mental health disorders would report decreased perceptions of NICU discharge readiness compared with mothers without such a history. They concluded that the one-third who reported a history of mental health disorder indeed had decreased perception of their infant well-being in addition to their own well-being during the critical time of NICU discharge. This indicates that there is an unmet need for provision of enhanced transition home services for the mother-infant dyad. <clears throat> well, I, I'm glad to hear that there's greater attention being paid to factors that may put women at risk for postpartum depression or anxiety or PTSD. Uh, there already have been articles uh, documenting that pediatricians, when they're doing well newborn and well infant exams, should be encouraged to inquire after the well-being of their patient's mothers and if they suspect a problem, encourage them to get help for depression and anxiety. And certainly, if a woman is under even more stress than normal after giving birth because they had a preemie who had to spend time in NICU, then it absolutely would make sense to intervene at that stage to make sure that a woman is stable enough to go home and care for her infant who, while stable enough to go home from the NICU, may still have quite a few challenges uh, in terms of uh, the infant's physical health, and that depends heavily on the mother's ability to care for it, and therefore the mother's mental health is a major factor in the prognosis for that baby. All right, well, I actually have another article Relating to postpartum depression, to go over with you, we'll do that right after our next break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. It's Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the latest mental health-related news. And now, as promised, another article relating to research on postpartum depression. Low levels of an anti-anxiety hormone are linked to postpartum depression. The effect was measured in women already diagnosed with mood disorders. This comes to us from Johns Hopkins University. In a small-scale study of women with previously diagnosed mood disorders, researchers report that lower levels of the hormone allopregnenolone in the second trimester of pregnancy were associated with an increased chance of developing postpartum depression in women already known to be at risk for the disorder. In a report on the study, which was published on March 7th in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology, the researchers say the findings could lead to diagnostic markers and preventative strategies for the condition, 
which strikes an estimated 15 to 20% of American women who give birth. The researchers cautioned that theirs was an observational study in women already diagnosed with a mood disorder and or taking antidepressants or mood stabilizers, and it does not establish cause and effect between this progesterone metabolite and postpartum depression. But it does, they say, add to evidence that hormonal disruptions during pregnancy point to opportunities for intervention. Postpartum depression affects early bonding between the mother and child. Untreated, it has potentially devastating and even lethal consequences for both. Infants of women with the disorder may be neglected and have trouble eating, sleeping, and developing normally, and an estimated 20% of postpartum maternal deaths are thought to be due to suicide. Many earlier studies haven't shown postpartum depression to be tied to actual levels of pregnancy hormones, but rather to an individual's vulnerability to fluctuations in these hormones, and they didn't identify any concrete way to tell whether a woman would develop postpartum depression. This study looked at a high-risk population of women already diagnosed with mood disorders and asked what might be making them more susceptible. 60 pregnant women between the ages of 18 and 45 were recruited by investigators at study sites at the Johns Hopkins University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. About 70% were white and 21.5% were African American. Obviously, that severely limits the general, generalizability of these results. All the women had previously been diagnosed with a mood disorder, such as major depression or bipolar disorder. Almost a third had been previously hospitalized due to complications from their mood disorder, and 73% had more than one mental illness. During this study, 76% of the participants used psychiatric medications, including antidepressants or mood stabilizers, and about 75% of the participants were depressed at some point during the investigation either during the pregnancy or shortly thereafter. Now, I'd like to take this moment to point out something. This goes to show you that even though pregnant women may be taking medication, they might still have symptoms of depression. Therefore, it's very risky to have people who become, women who become pregnant stop taking their medication because there's such a high rate of symptoms during pregnancy that even with medication, taking them off of it could make them even more vulnerable. Even though we can't say the medicine is safe for the fetus. Now, during the second trimester, that's about 20 weeks pregnant, in the third trimester, which is about 34 weeks, each participant 
took a mood test and gave blood, 40 participants participated in the second trimester data collection, and 19 of these women, or 47.5%, developed postpartum depression at one or three months postpartum. The participants were assessed and diagnosed by a clinician using criteria for major depression. Of the 58 women who participated in the third trimester data collection, 25 of them, or 43.1%, developed postpartum depression. 38 women participated in both trimester data collections. Using the blood samples, the researchers measured the blood levels of progesterone and allopregnenolone, a byproduct made from the breakdown of progesterone and known for its calming anti-anxiety effects. The researchers found no relationship between progesterone levels in the second or third trimesters and the likelihood of developing postpartum depression. They also found no link between the third trimester levels of allopregnenolone and postpartum depression. However, they did notice a link between postpartum depression and diminished levels of allopregnenolone levels in the second trimester. For example, according to study data, a woman with an allopregnenolone level of 7.5 had a 1.5% chance of developing postpartum depression. At half that level, or about 3.75, the mother had a 33% likelihood of developing the disorder. For every additional nanogram per milliliter increase in allopregnenolone, the risk of developing postpartum depression dropped by 63%. Every woman has high levels of certain hormones, including allopregnenolone, at the end of pregnancy. So they decided to look earlier in the pregnancy to see if they could tease apart small differences in hormone levels that might more accurately predict postpartum depression later. Many earlier studies on postpartum depression focused on a less ill population, often excluding women whose symptoms were serious enough to warrant psychiatric medication, making it difficult to detect trends in those women most at risk. Because the study data suggest that higher levels of allopregnenolone in the second trimester seem to protect against postpartum depression, in the future, the group hopes to study whether allopregnenolone can be used in women at risk to prevent postpartum depression. Johns Hopkins is one of several institutions currently participating in a clinical trial that is looking at allopregnenolone as a treatment for postpartum depression. Based on the results, it would seem to me it would be uh, most effective as a preventative rather than a treatment. Additional and larger studies are needed to determine whether women without mood disorders show the same patterns of allopregnenolone levels linked 
to postpartum depression risk. It's an important point. Remember, they only looked at women at high risk for postpartum depression, and it would now be important to look at a broader population. If those future studies confirm a similar impact, then tests for low levels of allopregnenolone in the second trimester could be used as a biomarker to predict those mothers who are at risk of developing postpartum depression. Many of the participants in this study developed postpartum depression while on antidepressants or mood stabilizers. The researchers say that the medication dosages weren't prescribed by the study group and were monitored by the participant's primary care physician, psychiatrist, or obstetrician. Many, if not most, women who become pregnant are undertreated for their depression because many physicians believe that smaller doses of antidepressants are safer for the baby. But the study author says we don't have any evidence that this is true. And I could not agree more. There is no evidence to document that, well, it's safer for the baby if we give you lower doses. If the medication dose is too low and the mother relapses into depression during pregnancy or the postpartum period, then the baby will be exposed to both the drugs and the mother's illness. Of course, it's just common sense. I could not agree with this more. What's appropriate if you're going to expose the baby at all to the drug is make sure it's at a level to keep the mother's depression under control. If you're giving the mother too little medication, as they just mentioned in, in their article, it's a double whammy. They're being exposed to the drug and to the mother's depression. The research team are currently analyzing the medication doses used by women in the study to determine whether those given adequate doses of antidepressants were less likely to develop symptoms in pregnancy or in the postpartum. Only 15% of women with postpartum depression are estimated to ever receive professional treatment, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Many physicians don't screen for it, and there is a stigma for mothers. A mother who asks for help may be seen as incapable of handling her situation as a mother, or may be criticized by friends or family for taking the medication during or shortly after pregnancy. And sadly, folks, I've even heard of obstetricians who have criticized patients for taking medication, if you can believe that. But we know if the mother is very vulnerable, it's better for her to take her medication, better for her not to be depressed, better for the baby not to be exposed to her depression. Going to have to wrap it up for tonight. Hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.